0: Good morning. morning. Delight to be here this morning. Many thanks to Pastor Michael and the elders for the opportunity to minister God's word to you today. Last week I finished out a long drawn out series on the patriarchs, four sermons in two years. I'm going to start another one today and keep going till the next millennium or Jesus comes, whichever is first. Several years ago, as I was working on a commentary on Mark's gospel, I noticed an unusual thing. Every single one of the women in Mark who comes into contact with Jesus, every single one of them is a heroine in stark contrast to the bungling and bumbling males, Jesus' disciples, (laughs) whom Mark constantly shows as falling on their faces. So that's what launched me on this series that I'm calling Marked Women. This Sunday and for the next several years, whenever I come back, we're going to look at these marked women, the women in the gospel. Now, there are women in the gospel, Mark, who do not come into contact with Jesus. They are not heroines. Mary is actually one of them. She doesn't come into contact with Jesus. The only time she... Shows up when Jesus is alive is when she is outside the house and Jesus is inside the house. She and her other children are coming to catch him and commit him because he's going crazy, they think. So she's not a heroine. But all of the other women, every single one of them is a heroine. Every single one of them is unnamed. So that's where we are. So here we are with the first one, first of the marked women. There's a QR code if you'll... Scan that, you'll get to a handout which has a skimpy outline and has all the verses that I'll be dealing with. As you get there, let's bow our heads one more time in a word of prayer. Our Father, for the opportunity to listen to God's word taught and preached and exposited, we are grateful. Thank you for the opportunity to corporately worship. We ask that the Holy Spirit who wrote these words would illuminate them into our hearts and also strengthen our wills and give us grace to believe and to obey through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. On April 12, 1961, the Soviet Union launched spaceship Vostok 1 into low-earth orbit. On board was Yuri Gagarin, a Soviet Cosmonaut. This one hour, 48 minute flight was a historic one, the first manned spaceflight in history. Gagarin would forevermore be known as the first person in space. Dozens of cosmonauts and astronauts alike have followed in Gagarin's footsteps. In some cases, literally followed his footsteps, literally. You see, on that launch day in 1961, Gagarin was brought to the launch pad on transport bus. When he arrived at the pad, he realized that he had to go. Go as in he had to do his business, number one. You with me? What a story to start off a series with. (laughs) Anyway, the man had to go before he set off to go where no one had gone before. <laughs> and while Vostok 1 and its launch pad had a lot of cool things, one thing it did not have were toilets. So Mr. Gagarin unzipped, or however one opens that part of his spacesuit, and relieved himself right on the rear tire of his transport bus. And then he had a trailblazing space flight. Of course, his peeing on the tire had nothing to do with the success of the Vostok 1, but future cosmonauts figured out why take the chance. So taking a leak on the rear tire of the transport bus before going into the great beyond became a Soviet and later a Russian tradition. To go where Gagarin went, cosmonauts go where Gagarin went. Since Yuri Gagarin's flight, every single male cosmonaut has followed suit. Even several of the female cosmonauts have kept up the tradition, taking a cup of the good stuff on launch day and baptizing the rear tire in question. Mindless following, clueless following. And I've often wondered if we are like that as we follow Jesus Christ on this trip of discipleship called life. It all began when we placed our trust in Jesus Christ as our only savior from sin. He who came down from heaven and died for us on the cross and rose again on the third day, if you and I believe in his atoning work at that instant, at that point of faith, you are saved. Finally, forever, and fully and we become instantly children of God. If you haven't done that, by the way, please feel free to talk with one of us here here at Stonebridge. We would be delighted if you were to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ if you haven't done so yet. That's where the strip of discipleship begins, and then we begin following him, which is what Mark's gospel is all about, following Jesus. But what is discipleship all about? Is it mindless, clueless following? We're going to find some critical answers to that question in our text today, Mark 1, 21 through 45 in the handout. Mark 1, 21 through 45. Jesus has just inaugurated this trip of discipleship in the first 20 verses of Mark 1 by calling four disciples. And then comes our section. All kinds of things are happening here. Let's take a look. Mark 1, 21. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered into the synagogue and began to teach. And there, Jesus performs his first recorded miracle in the Gospel of Mark, an exorcism. There is no slow ramping up into action here. Jesus just dives straight into the deep and powerfully and authoritatively taking on supernatural foes. Mark 1, 23 to 24. And immediately there was, in their synagogue... A man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What is it with us and you, Jesus the Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I want you to notice the demoniacs, have you come? Now catch what Jesus says in one twenty-five and twenty-six. He uses the same verbs. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed him, and calling out with a loud call, came out of him." So to the demons, have you come? Jesus says, you come. And as a result, the demon comes out. Because when Jesus comes, the forces of darkness are dispelled. He is the one with power, and he is the one with authority. That Jesus is the powerful and authoritative one is emphasized twice, once at the beginning Of this exorcism story 122. And they were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority. And not as the scribes. And again at the end of the exorcism story 127. And they were all astounded. So that they discussed among themselves saying. What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits. And they obey him. Jesus the one with power and authority. And appropriately, the crowd is amazed in 122, and astounded in 1.10. They have never seen anything like this. They are awestruck by this dramatic display of power and authority. This was something they had never ever encountered before. So 128 and the news about him spread, immediately went out everywhere into the whole region of Galilee. The people are going, this guy is amazing. The stuff he's doing is real cool. Look at all the power the guy has. Man, he's, he's something else. I better hang around him. If I can learn some of his tricks, I could go far. I might be able to work some wonders and make some money. Or at the very least, I might be able to have him get rid of some of my problems. My acne, my kidney stone, my kids not getting jobs, my cows not giving milk. And then, once my problems are solved, I live happily ever after. Yeah, let's, let's follow Jesus. Wow, Jesus, you're the man. What are you going to do next? Here's what he's going to do next. This is at the end of our section, and it's not an exorcism, but a cure of leprosy. But both this leprosy at the beginning of our section and both this cure of the exorcism at the beginning of the section and leprosy at the end are very related. They are recounted using similar verbiage, and Mark intends for us to see them as being paired. Both accounts are a removal of uncleanness of some sort. Let's look at that, 126. Exorcism, and the unclean spirit convulsed him, and calling out with a loud voice, came out of him. At the end of our text, healing of leprosy, notice what happens, 142, and immediately the leprosy went away from the same Greek root as the word come, and he was cleansed. So you have the cleansing and the coming out in parallel. Mark wants us to see them as being paid a demonstration of the power and authority of Jesus. By the way, biblical leprosy is not necessarily Hansen's disease, the leprosy that we see in modern times. Biblical descriptions differ substantially from the symptoms and signs of Hansen's. But in any case, we see two uncleannesses removed at either end. Unclean spirit exercised, unclean leprosy healed, because when Jesus comes... Uncleanness goes out. He is the powerful and authoritative one. And the fact that both this demonization and leprosy illness are called uncleanness tells us something. In God's viewpoint, all human afflictions, whether they be supernatural or organic, are a result of God's way being subverted by satanic influence and the general human condition of our own sinfulness. And that's what causes all our problems and all our frailty. It's our inherent state of being born in sin that puts these sufferings upon us. And so we are weak, our bodies are failing us, we're falling apart. And a host of illnesses overwhelm us, be they demonic or organic in origin. Our inherent uncleanness results in all of this travail in god 's eyes, therefore, everything is spiritual at its root cause, and that root cause is what Jesus came to remedy. This is the kingdom of God he was inaugurating, one in which there would be no sin because he had died for sin, and there would be no more sorrow, no more suffering of any kind. Jesus came to handle the sin problem once and for all, and he saw his exorcisms and his healings not as panaceas for human ills, but as spiritual triumphs, victories in the conflict with Satan, visible manifestations of a greater reality, the commencement of divine rule, the inbreaking of the promised kingdom of God. What a day that'll be when it happens fully. On the other hand, in mankind's perspective, as these people that we are looking at had in their minds, these scourges of life, demonic, organic, whatever, are inconveniences that must be overcome so that we can live happily ever after. From the human viewpoint, these distresses are merely earthly afflictions affecting earthly realities like my well-being, my wage earning capacity, my personal comfort. So the crowds here are seeing this powerful authoritative Jesus simply as providing a respite for their earthly woes. They are ignorant of or don't care about spiritual realities and the reality of sin that is an integral part of the human condition and an ultimate cause of our pain and of all our sorrow. And so with their human interests and their alleviation of their temporal woes in their minds, they naively flock to Jesus, the miracle man, the heavenly Bellboy who will give them all that they want, following him for the wrong reasons. Even the disciples, as we'll see in a second. No one was comprehending Jesus' mission. The inauguration of the kingdom of God that will one day banish forever all evil and all sin. Instead, everyone wanted to be a part of Jesus for the earthly comfort and, from, and for relief from whatever ills beset them. Wrong priorities Following Jesus with the wrong priorities. Fred and his wife Edna went to the state fair every year. And every year Edna would say, Fred, I'd like to ride in that there airplane. And every year Fred would say, I know, Edna, but the airplane costs, ride costs $10. And $10 is $10. One year, Fred and Edna went to the state fair, and Edna said, Fred, I'm 75 years old. If I don't ride that airplane this year, I may never get another chance. Fred replied, Edna, that airplane costs $10. And $10 is $10. The pilot overheard this conversation and said, folks, I'll make you a deal. I'll take you both up for the ride. If you can stay quiet, for the entire duration of the flight and not say a single word, I won't charge you. It's free. But one word out of you, it's $10. Fred and Edna agreed, and up they went. And the pilot did all kinds of twists and turns and loop-de-loops and rolls and dives, but not a single word was heard. He did his strikes all over again, but still not a word. Finally, as they were landing, the pilot yelled out, by golly, I did everything I could to think of, I could think of to get you to yell out, but you didn't. Edna replied and said, well, I was going to say something when Fred fell out, but $10 is $10. You've got to get your priorities right here. Earthly ills are day-by-day problems trump heavenly realities. Earthly ills are the priority. Let's just follow Jesus to see what we can get. Jesus understood that that was why everyone was flocking to him. So at least three times in our text, Jesus commands the demoniac and the cured leopard to be quiet. Don't tell people they're just going to come after me for the wrong reasons, wanting their earthly problems solved. one twenty-five, and Jesus rebuked the demoniac saying, be quiet and come out of them. And in one thirty-four, he was, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and many demons he cast out and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew him. And Mark 1, 43 to 44, and sternly warning him, the guy who was healed of leprosy, immediately he sent him out, and he said to him, see that you say nothing to anybody. Of course, nobody is quiet, and the crowds end up thronging Jesus from every quarter, all looking out for what they can get from this this valet of theirs, this wonder worker. 32 and 33, when it was evening, when the sun had set, they were bringing to him all who were ill and those demon possessed and the whole city had gathered at the door. Everyone is following Jesus for the tangible goods and the betterments of life he might dole out. Even the disciples they too like the crowds buy into the philosophy that Jesus is nothing more than a cosmic vending machine at our beck and call to take away our afflictions and our discomforts. Give me this. Give me that. Following Jesus for the wrong reasons. Twice these ignorant disciples hijacked Jesus' ministry for their own ends, 29 and 30. And immediately after they came out from the synagogue, they went into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was lying down, suffering with a fever. And immediately they told, her, told him about her. Yeah, heal her, Jesus. Who cares about spiritual afflictions? Who cares about the inbreaking of the divine kingdom? That's that's for the birds. We've got more important concerns here, like gallstones and Aunt Sue's back problems and my wife's joblessness and my IRA stanking and Chinese balloons spying on us and mother-in-law's fever and critical things like that. Why bother with all this petty stuff about sin and evil and God and Satan? So why don't you come along and heal my mother-in-law for starters? I don't particularly care for her, but at least it'll make my wife happy. So Jesus, what do you say? Want to see if you can come and do your little uh, hocus pocus on her? And later on, they interrupt him again. Jesus, trying to escape the crowds, goes away to a mountaintop to pray before dawn. And they find him there, 1.35 through 37. And early in the morning, while it was very dark, he arose and, went, and went, went out and went away to a wilderness place. And there he was praying. And Simon and those with him searched for him. They found him and said to him, all are seeking you. What are you doing up here? There's a whole crowd down there waiting to get healed. We've got them all lined up. Heart conditions this way, diabetes this way, fractures and dislocations in the front. Hey, we've even got a CT scanner ready for you. We can help, we'll triage these patients for you. We'll be your PR team. And catch this in 137 though. And they found him and said to him, all are seeking you. Whenever Mark uses the verb seek in his gospel, it always has a negative connotation with implications of hostility and opposition. Mark eleven eighteen, and the chief priests and scribes heard him and were seeking how to destroy him. And then 12 12, and they, that's the chief priests and scribes, were seeking to seize him. And 14 1, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by cunning and kill him. And what do Simon and the others tell Jesus in 137? Hey, Jesus, everyone is seeking you. That doesn't sound good. You see, everyone crowds, and disciples, everyone is simply out to get what they can from this worker of wonders, dismissing Jesus' far more magnificent agenda, the conquering of sin, and the inbreaking of the divine kingdom. Jesus himself said that's what he came for, 138, and he said to him, let us go elsewhere into the neighboring town, so that I may preach there also, for I came out for this purpose. Preaching, i.e. for the announcement, and by implication, the extending of God's kingdom. That's what Jesus had come for. That's what he had come to proclaim and to establish and inaugurate. But that's exactly what nobody seemed to be interested in. Mark's point here is clear. Everyone, including these called disciples, are ganging up on him to experience his magic. They don't seem to care for anything else. They are, they are all, number one, following to get. They are following to get gimme, gimme, gimme. In fact, there is another subtle indication in this very text that the humans, even the disciples, are clueless about Jesus. Let Let me take you quickly through how the disciples address Jesus in all of Mark's gospel. The first time they directly address Jesus, he is sleeping in a potentially sinking boat, Mark 4, 38, and they call him teacher. Don't you care that we are perishing? In in fact, they never call him anything but teacher or rabbi in all of Mark. They confess him as Christ once, but they never directly address him that way. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Mark 9, 5, Rabbi, Peter said, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, just all three equal prophets. Later John says to Jesus, 9, 38, teacher. We saw someone casting out demons in your name. And then those two brothers, James and John 10.35, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And Peter, after Jesus curses a fig tree, 11.21, rabbi, rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. That's all they thought Jesus was. Teacher, rabbi. But somebody did get Jesus correctly. You know who, the, who they were? The demons. They always got it right. 3.11. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, were falling before him and crying, saying, You are the Son of God. As well in our text, 124, the demons who came out of the demoniac said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Wonder of wonders. The demons know who Jesus is. But the disciples are clueless, these guys. They don't recognize him. Joshua Bell emerged from the DC metro one busy weekday morning and positioned himself against a wall near a trash can. By most measures, he was just another nondescript youngish white guy in jeans and a long-sleeved t-shirt and a Washington Nationals baseball cap. Carried a small case with him, he opened it, removed a violin, placed the open case by his feet, and shrewdly put in a few dollars and pocket change as seed money, and he began to play. For the next hour in the DC Metro that morning, Joshua Bell played Mozart and Schubert. Almost a thousand people streamed by it, most of them hardly taking notice. If they would have, they might have recognized the young man as the world-renowned violinist that he is, Grammy Award winner, Avery Fisher Prize winner, visiting professor at the Royal Academy of Music and at MIT, music director of St. Martin in the Fields. And if passersby had kept their eyes open, they might also have recognized that the violin that he played was a $3 million Stradivarius. Nobody recognized him. Just three days before this, he had sold out Boston Symphony Hall with ordinary seats going for more than $100. Guess how much money he made in the subway that morning? $32.17 from 27 people who stopped long enough to give a donation. Nobody recognized him. Nobody recognized Jesus either. Jesus? He's just a redneck rabbi, some crazy teacher, but he can do miracles. Humans are clueless. They don't recognize Jesus. They're simply following to get him. Nobody cares. Nobody. No one. Did I just say no one? Did we just, didn't we just run across a woman in here somewhere? Where was that? Oh yeah, here she is in 1.30 and 31. The mother-in-law. She's a woman. Because we already know that Mark has a soft spot for women in his gospel. So this lady must have been different. And she comes into contact with Jesus. And she's anonymous. So she must be the heroine. Let's take a closer look at her. 1.30 and 31. Now Simon's mother-in-law, our woman, was lying down, suffering with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came up and raised her up, holding her hand, and the fever left her. And she served them. She was different. In all of these stories of Jesus' increasing popularity in Mark 1, only this woman, Simon's mother-in-law, is said to serve Jesus and his followers. An act of self-giving. Nobody in the idolizing crowd thronging Jesus is mentioned as giving to him. Not even the disciples. Everyone was following to get, except for this anonymous woman. Here was one who was willing to give, to serve, because she herself had been given to. This woman was, and here's number two, following to give. Following to give. This woman got it right. She was a true disciple. And what makes me so sure of that? There are only two instances of the verb serve with humans as subjects in all of Mark's gospel. Only twice do we see the verb serve with humans as subjects. Mark 1.31, our text is the first one. came up and raised her up, holding her hand, and the fever left her, and she served them. The second one is at the end of the gospel, 1540 to 41. And there were, there were also women looking on from a distance who, when he was in Galilee, used to follow him and serve him. Did you also catch that both times the ones who are serving are women? It's a subtle jab by Mark. He's pointing an appreciative finger-in-law at this, finger at this mother-in-law. A woman who does the male disciples want better. They and the rest of the crowd are only following to get. She, on the other hand, was giving. In fact, the same verb serve is also found in Jesus' own statement about his own mission. And that forms one of the key Verses of Mark's gospel, chapter 10, verse 45. Many of you have probably memorized that. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Mark is clearly pointing to this mother-in-law as being a true disciple, following the model of her savior, serving after the fashion of her Lord. The woman was already doing in 131 what Jesus himself would say about his mission in 1045. And that is what a disciple is called to do, to serve, following to give. This is the attitude with which we follow Jesus on this trip of discipleship, following to give. Because following Jesus in discipleship is not intended to make me feel good and comfortable and happy, at least not in this life. Happiness and all that will come, not necessarily on this side of eternity. Discipleship here on earth is a call to be involved in something more magnificent than the securing of our own temporal comforts and consolations or the alleviation of our existential difficulties. Discipleship ought to be characterized by following to give an attitude of service. What can we do? Simple. Be a mother-in-law. doesn't matter what your gender is, be a mother-in-law. I'd like to challenge us to engage in at least one act of service once a week whether it's in your Bible studies your small groups or other connections, be a mother-in-law. Might be giving your time to help someone, visit someone, spend time with the shut-ins, cooking of a meal for someone in crisis, feeding the single folks in the church. Now there's a splendid idea. I have to confess that every time this single person has been here at Stonebridge, I've been fed. There are a lot of mothers-in-laws and fathers-in-law here. Or it might be helping someone to take care of their kids. All kinds of opportunities exist. Be a mother-in-law. Let's engage in deliberate service, following to give at least once a week. Make it a habit. Start within the community of this church. Let's follow Jesus to give, not to get. Like Mark's heroine, this mother-in-law. Doug Nichols, who was a missionary in India, writes this. While serving with Operation Mobilization in India in the late 60s, tuberculosis forced me to enter a sanitarium for several months. I did not yet speak the language, but I tried to give Christian literature written in their own language to patients and doctors and nurses. Everyone politely refused. I sensed many weren't happy about a rich American, to them, all Americans are rich, being in a free, government-run sanitarium. They didn't know. Doug Nichols writes, that I was just as broke as they were. The first first few nights I was there, I woke around 2 o'clock in the morning coughing. One early morning during my coughing spell, I spotted one of the older and sicker patients across the aisle trying to get out from his bed. He would sit up on the edge of his bed and try to stand, but in weakness, he would fall back into his bed. I didn't understand what he was trying to do. He finally fell back into the bed, exhausted, and I heard him crying softly. The next morning, I realized what the man had been attempting. He had been trying to get up and walk to the bathroom. The stench in our ward was awful. Other patients yelled insults at the man. Angry nurses moved him roughly from side to side as they cleaned up the mess. The old man just curled into a ball and wept. The next night, I woke up again, coughing, and I noticed the same man across the aisle sit up and try to stand, like the night before he fell back whimpering into his bed. Doug Nichols writes, now, I, I don't like bad smells, and I didn't want to be involved, but I got out of bed and went over to him. When I touched his shoulder, his eyes opened wide with fear. I smiled, put my arms under him, and picked him up. He was very light due to his age and to advanced tuberculosis. I carried him to the washroom, which was just a small room with a hole in the floor. I stood behind him with my arms under his armpits as he took care of himself. After he finished, I picked him up and carried him back to his bed. As I laid him down, he kissed me on the cheek, smiled, and said something that I didn't understand. The next morning, another patient woke me up and handed me a steaming cup of chai. He motioned with his hands that he wanted a tract. As the sun rose, other patients approached me and indicated that they too wanted the booklets I had unsuccessfully tried to distribute before. Throughout the day, nurses, interns, doctors, staff asked for literature. Weeks later, an evangelist who spoke the language visited me, and as he talked with the others, he discovered that several of them had put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior as a result of reading the literature. Doug Nichols concludes, what did it take to reach those people with the gospel? It wasn't health. I didn't have any. It wasn't the ability to speak their language. I couldn't. Or a persuasive tongue. I didn't possess it. I simply took a trip to the bathroom. following Jesus, to give, not to get. Be a mother-in-law. Let's pray. Father, for this anonymous, one-verse, unsung woman, Peter's mother-in-law, we are thankful for so the little cameo that she plays that the Holy Spirit has inspired that is so potent as it stands silhouetted with the failures of everybody else around Jesus to give. We are amazed because it convicts us. We too have fallen, followed after your son often, only with thoughts of what we can get out. And we are displeased. When our needs are not met, when our wants are unsatisfied, when our angst is not removed, when our diseases are not healed, when our comfort level is not increased. Father, we know that all of these things that we desire, the goodness, the comfort and happiness will come one day as you make all things new in the consummation of your divine kingdom. But until that day, help us realize in the heart of our hearts that the trip of discipleship here on earth is one of following Jesus to give, not to get. These are tough words for us to absorb, assimilate, and to obey. So we ask for your Holy Spirit's strength. That this third person of the Trinity who inspired these words in the Gospel of Mark would himself strengthen us through his power to be true followers of Jesus, like this mother-in-law who followed to give, not to get. Help us to do that. For the furtherance of your son's kingdom, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand for a benediction? May the grace of God the Father, the love of God the Son, and the comfort and strengthening and fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all, my brothers and sisters, as you go out into the world, following Jesus to give, not to get, following Jesus as mothers-in-law. Go in peace. You're dismissed.